and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm your host, Boris Felgentreer, and today's episode is dedicated to a situation that has made major headlines for weeks and months now, and that we just have to take a deep dive into here at the Logistics Tribe. I'm talking about the situation and the chaos that is going on in ocean shipping right now. Rates for ocean freight are reaching astronomical heights. There are container and equipment shortages, port congestions and delays, and it's all happening at the same time. There's a lot of blame and finger-pointing going on, and the relationship between shippers and carriers is tense, to say the least. I invited two of my trusted experts on this topic onto the show today to better understand what's going on here. And it turns out there's some silver linings here, and it's not all doom and gloom. Patrick Berglund is founder and CEO of Xeneta, a freight rate benchmarking platform based in Oslo, Norway. And Jonas Krumland is founder and CEO of Lockward, a tech startup from Hamburg, Germany, that provides supply chain as a service solutions through a cloud-based platform. This turned out to be an awesome conversation. I hope you agree. Let's jump into it. Patrick, Jonas, welcome to the Logistics Tribe podcast. How are you guys? Good, how are you? Yeah. Nice to be here. Really good to be here. Thanks for, for having us, Boris. Patrick, you're calling in from where? From Norway, right? Yeah, I'm in Oslo, Norway. It's freezing cold. Freezing cold? It's freezing cold even here. And, and um, Jonas, you're not that far. You're in Hamburg, right? Exactly. Home office or are you real office? No, right now I'm, I'm in our real office. In the real office, all right. Yeah. Holding up the fork. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. Guys, I want to talk to you about everything ocean transportation, ocean shipping, containerized freight transportation today. And I, uh, I believe I have two bona fide experts with you guys here. Um, we'll dive into all of that in, in just a second. Before we get started, I want to give you guys a chance to present yourself a little bit, give yourself you know, some time to talk about your background. And let's start with you, Patrick. And I actually have a, a story there because I first encountered you or met you at an event in Berlin when I was still running marketing for GT Nexus. And we were at a, at a conference. I believe it was the... Deutsche Logistik Kongress in Berlin. It's maybe 2014, 15, something along those lines. And here you come. So I'm at the booth and you show up and you pull up a chair and you start talking. And it's like, who is this guy? This is a young guy, entrepreneur, and you pitched me your idea, uh, your vision that you had for the company when you had just launched and you went through quite a spiel and I listened to it and it's sort of almost, you were bouncing off ideas off of me and I listened to it and I very, very vividly remember after the conversation, when you walked away and I walked away, I was like, wow, that was sort of strange. It was interesting. Cool idea, but I walked away thinking, that's never going to work, <laughs> which is which is fantastic because now I'm looking back, it's like, oh man, I was really wrong about that because here you are, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, eight years later and you have a very successful business. You're the CEO and founder of Xeneta. So the stage is yours. Do you remember that conversation we had, that meeting we had back in the days? Yeah, I, 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 I do remember it, uh, Boris. It, at, at that time, I, I, I think I was a bit reaching out to anybody and, and considering the company we were working for, it was well-established and a known brand in the industry. So it's just interesting for me to sort of get a chance to bounce a little bit the idea, the concept with somebody who had uh, more experience and worked for, for, for you know, a, a well-established brand. So yeah. I think it's it's always strange thinking back to these things. And I, I've always, I, I've said many times actually that I'm I'm glad I did what I did in in such a relative young age uh-huh. because so, sort of embarking on this journey when you're like let's say five, 35 or or something like that I think 
I would think exactly as you did. Like, yeah, no, it's never gonna fly. <laughs> well, particularly because also it's not like you were like this this very very young kid straight out of college with some sort of pipe dreams, but you were actually from the industry. You worked at Kuno Nagel, so you you had the experience. You saw it firsthand. You were very close to the action, and that sort of um, that added a different dimension to it. it was like, wow, this guy know really knows the industry, and he comes up with this idea. So so take me back to the idea that you probably pitched back in the days in a nutshell. What was it back in the days when you first started? Well, it actually started off as, uh, as, as something we discussed within Kina, just to be clear now, because we, mm-hmm. one of the things I really dislike is that the, the market is really volatile and opaque, and I'm selling something to customers that are always questioning, is this a good price? Yeah. Are you screwing me over? Is this <laughs> like, and, then, and then if you look at a forwarder's sort of like churn rate, how many customers leave you every year and why? They leave mainly, primarily because of price and um, the percentage sort of you got to uh, win new clients before you start growing as a, as a folder every year is around 30%. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so that's numbers that are sky high in my world. So we thought, why don't we from a supplier side make the market more transparent so that you know our customers would trust us more? And these are some of the fundamental issues in this industry. And I'm sure Jonas would echo this as well. There ain't a lot of trust between the buyers and the suppliers in this industry, and it, and it still ain't, even though we've brought more transparency to it. Yeah, and my my impression back in the days, I still remember this very vividly, was wow, there's so much vested interest in this not being transparent, right? In this being shady and sort of uh, sort of a black box, that there's so much vested interest that you know this young guy with this new startup is just going to shut down. Nobody's going to play along, right? Like who's going to who's going to submit? Like you were telling me, well, I'm going to have all these uh, you know these big shippers like Nestle's and the Caterpillars of the world. They're going to just use their freight rates and going to upload it to my database. I'm going to be able to neutralize it, anonymize it, and then sort of come up with a with a sort of a rate index whatever right it's like whoa really how is that going to work and what are the shippers going to think of uh, what are the carriers going to think about that and all of these things went through my head that made it kind of sticky so um so how did it go from there then to the real the real the real deal where it actually started working yeah i think it's important uh, in, in order to be transparent as, as well as a company the four 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 and a half first years were really rough, rough. <laughs> yeah okay. because it's you're you're absolutely nobody and you do everything you can in order to f- call up or email the let's say global head of procurement at whatever electrolux right mm-hmm. and um you once you're eventually maybe if you're lucky get in touch with the person you actually ask for their proprietary data yeah data that's confidential between them right. and let's say the shipping line and you say give it to me because i'm going to go in to enough uh, other companies and ask for the same and then then you will get value right. and i remember this like i could get like data from let's say um Brazil to Netherlands, how would I find companies in Brazil or Netherlands sitting in Oslo that would give me enough data that I aggregate? So our first indexes, they hardly moved. The first numbers we could publish were like flat until we got like a new price point and then it moved. Right, right. right. So, so it was Yeah, you need really... to reach that critical mask where the data yeah. makes any sense, right? If you only have one price for one trade lane, well, that's great. <laughs> but it's not going to show you're not it. even legally allowed to present right. anything at that, even call it an average uh, with one uh, participant, right? So there's, there's requirements here that you need to go through. And even at that point, once you sort of get, get through that, the statistical sort of Signif- uh, whether it's statistically significant enough to actually be a valid representation of the market yeah. still is open for debate, right? And that's why the first four and a half, five years were so rough, right? And how were you but, able um, to overcome it finally? What was the, the well, thing that... 
it, we, that's that's the part about being young enough but as you said not so young that i was straight from schools so i didn't have any industry insight so i think it, we we had enough grit to just and sort of s- stick with it over and over and over grind it grind it grind right. it i have many stories in terms of like how we went to market for instance we we built a LinkedIn scraper. So we had three <laughs> computers because we were three people that were on our LinkedIn profile and just searching for like um, companies with more than whatever, 10,000 employees and so forth. And then pairing first name dot last name at company domain dot com. And then we just blasted emails until LinkedIn, of course, you know, shut you down. Or something. That. Yeah, 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 really yeah. shut down our account because yeah. it, nobody's visiting 10,000 10, people a week. Right. So <laughs> but it worked and we, we funneled that through and maybe we got like 10 percent response rate. But that's how we eventually got a little bit of data. And then at some point in, I would say, mid 15, 16, it was enough data to give enough value to the participants that we saw the data really taking uh-huh, off. Uh-huh. And the example here is that we took about five years to get 10 million data points. Uh-huh. And then two, year later, two years later, we get 10 million data points a month. Ah, so we got this exponential curve going on. I yeah. see. So the long sort the, of draw trough where it's like this sort of yeah. painful, slow moving and all of a sudden shoots up. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what, a, what an awesome story. Jonas, let's let's jump to you. We also have a have a history. So the first time we talked on a on a podcast, or the first time we met was in, through a podcast, right? So we did a the BVL digital podcast, which I which I still do. That's how we met. And um, that that episode where we typically sort of interview you know senior level execs and CEOs from very well known companies and occasionally also startups. So I I didn't give our conversation that much sort of chance of really standing out. But looking back at the numbers now, that was a very very popular episode. Maybe you pushed it. Also, maybe you had some. LinkedIn tricks there too to, <laughs> to push it. But um, yeah, you, that's how we first met. So I invited you back on this podcast. Welcome, yeah. man. Yeah, thanks <laughs> thanks for having me again. Uh, no, I just begged everyone I, I know to listen to that podcast episode. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy if, uh, if people find some value in that. Um, and it was yeah. fun. It was really fun. Yeah, and, and you have a similar background to Patrick in the sense that you also started in the logistics arena, yes. right? So you so learned the learned the logistics business from the ground up. You worked at Lishako and others, or just Lishako? Just right? Lishako, exactly. I usually introduce myself saying, I don't know whether I know logistics, but I know for sure that I don't know anything else because I've never done anything else. So, yeah, um, yeah I started uh, more than 10 years ago now. Uh, also, just like Patrick in uh, freight forwarding at Le Chaco and somehow stuck to logistics and supply chain management. Yeah, t- tell me a little bit about, about Lockward, what you do now, what the, what the idea is in a nutshell. Um, we invented a term to describe what we do, uh, which we call uh, supply chain management as a service. So at Lockward, we uh, built a cloud platform that enables uh, shippers and large BCOs to holistically manage their supply chain from end to end. So they can actually use our different modules uh, software features to, for example, start with an order management, uh, use our transport management, and uh, and uh, use business intelligence to to make sense of all the data. We've got allocation management, which will probably today be one of the uh, uh, topics. We've got rate and tender management, which uh, which is where I've got some uh, touch points with uh, Patrick here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we try to cover um, all those things a supply chain manager does every day, and we try to. Um, bring value into what they're doing every day. Yeah, and this is a multimodal, but it's got a heavy, heavy emphasis on ocean transportation. I read, or no? Yeah, our our heritage is um, is clearly ocean freight. Uh, we we offer overland air freight and ocean freight. 
Um, but whenever someone asks me, like, why is your focus on ocean freight, then my re usual response is because I started this and I didn't know anything else back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's 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 talk about the current situation then in o global ocean transportation. I mean, it's it's made the headlines of major newspapers for the last few months. I mean, that that rarely happens in the world of ocean transportation, that occupies the sort of mainstream business press and media for such a long period of time. Maybe Patrick, can you describe what currently is going on? What what's the situation with with pricing going through the roof, with container shortages, with capacity shortages, with with um, with port congestions? There's a whole bunch of things going on. What is it? Describe to us what the situation looks like from your vantage point. What's going on right now? Yeah, there's a, ser a series of, of 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 reasons to why we find ourselves in the in this market that you sort of started describing. Boris, let's let's go back to when the pandemic started. Yeah, February, March, 2020, when China shuts down, then followed by Europe and and, and let's say a semi lockdown of US. The immediate response from the market was to a little bit panic, right? Because there's a lot of goods moving, and all of a sudden everybody expects that consumption will drop. Right, mm -hmm. that consumption will drop because unemployment rates will skyrocket as the world shuts down. Right, mm -hmm. and and that sort of a little bit happened in the beginning where. Uh, the response from the shipping lines is to pull out capacity from the market. Mm -hmm. Like double-digit percentages of the capacity just swept away from the market. And then containers getting piled up outside of warehouses in, in Europe and US by the thousands. Yeah. Right. So we had customers calling us then in complete panic saying like, we're not getting our, our warehouses are filled to the brink and we're not selling our products. Then come summer, people people realize that, you know, there's support packages there's less, way lower unemployment rates than what you would imagine and you can't spend money on services nor travel what happens is that people start buying more goods durable mm -hmm. and non-durable goods right in a market that's just swept out capacity mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so you create a squeeze a major squeeze that it's like the opportunity of a lifetime for the shipping lines to <laughs> you know mm -hmm. jack up prices uh, Trans-Pacific Westbound was the first one um, uh, that, that moved and the Chinese authorities quickly stepped in and said like, okay, now we're reaching a sort of a roof uh, on, on this one and, and, and urged the carriers to uh, control the rate increases. And at that point, all the carriers stopped at 4,000. And I, I can show you the data on this as well. A very volatile corridor poof, uh -huh. stopping everybody at once at 4,000. And what happened on top of that? Surcharges. So even though they file, are filing like $4,000 rates to go from uh, uh, Asia to Europe, uh, the US, the reality is that customers pay way more. It's just an additional surcharge on top that they don't file to the government. So, oh, I see. So so they found another way around it. To, to, yeah, to exactly. Right okay. But what, what happened on Asia to South America and Europe is that it just started picking up, right? So uh, later, uh, like first Trans-Pacific um, westbound to the US, then then followed South America, uh, which went from about $1,000 to $9,000, just to give you like a pers perspective of, about what we're talking about here. You, you find me any other commodity that moves as this, it's insane. And then Europe after that, um, and with Brexit sort of uh, making it even worse, so it's even more expensive to go to Felixstowe or Southampton than it is to Hamburg and Rotterdam. And here we're seeing rates all the way up until, let's say, 11,000 US dollars for a 40-foot dry box. And <clears throat> I'm, I mean, I could add a lot to this story, but what ha has happened is that capacity squeeze 
with uh, coupled with the equipment shortage. The equipment is, 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 let's say, in the wrong places of the world, so it's not where it's supposed to be. The carriers want to deploy as much of their assets onto these highly attractive trades, and everybody, whether you you know you're trading between South America to Europe and are not hit by those rate increases, you're still suffering because you get horrible reliability, you get very difficult to get uh, boxes and so forth. So it kind of hits everybody because of the, I don't know if you're going to call it ripple effects, but, but if, you, if you stop things in, in, in Long Beach due to congestion, yeah. it's going to hit Europe and uh, Australia as well. Yeah, it's, right? it's a complex interrelated system, right? When you make exactly. one small tweak like the butterfly wing flapping all of a yes. sudden. And he, he is, it was more than a butterfly wing flapping for sure. It was like a whole <laughs> eagle spreading his wings and <laughs> causing commotion. And, and this is what we're seeing now. And I, I, Jonas, you feel free to chip in here. But, but I see a sort of like longer term reason for this, which I'm, I'm happy to add some perspective to as well. There, there is a reason why we find ourselves in this market that looks very much like an uh, oligopoly. Uh, hard uh, closely pronounced like that but um and, and and that stems like 10 15 years of of, of a buyer's market right so what we effectively see today is a seller's market right you have the customers fighting for very little uh, of what they want basically that's the simplest way of looking at it but previously prior to this it's been over capacity so it's been a buyer's market where the customers have squeezed the carriers down 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 and this is what you see in their profitability over the last 10 years right right and <clears throat> what do you do when you're faced with that situation is that you pull out cost right meaning 10 years ago they started they stopped ordering three times as many empty boxes when they ordered a new vessel but rather did two times mm -hmm. right so eventually you have a situation where the infrastructure is not good enough to tackle these sudden um shifts in and this volatility, yeah, 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 and and yeah. So uh, to some some reasons, sometimes I say this is the customer's own fault, <laughs> and I'm exaggerating, but really it is where it's pushed because it's been mergers and acquisitions and bankruptcies for for years because of the conditions that they they have created between them. So yes, I would argue that that's the carrier's fault, but it's also the customer's fault, and in the, at the end of the day, it's the, in the customer's interest that the carriers are there. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very hard to pinpoint one single source of one one single bad guy, right? It's a, it's a confluence of different things that came all at the same time, and none of that would have happened without COVID, probably, right? So we would still be in the same situation prior, or what, how would you? Uh, yeah, I, I think it would. It's just that this is the perfect storm to uh, accelerate it and make it far more worse than it would have been. Yeah, Jonas, anything to add to it, or anything to disagree with? On yeah, what, I would um, like. Um, I mean, that's 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 not the first conversation uh, I have uh, with Patrick about that topic. So I kind of like know uh, know his standpoint, and and I would describe it as as like challenging the carrier landscape a bit there um, to to put it um, uh, diplomatically. And and I I as as you said uh, towards the ending of of your statement, Patrick, um, I think there's also lots uh, lots of responsibility for the situation that is being carried by shippers. Because and and we can actually see that, for example, in our data, uh, like um, one one of the services we run for our customers is allocation management, and what we basically mm -hmm. do there is we give them some kind of traffic light system where they can see, okay, um, where do I have open capacity and where did I already book way too many boxes, and we we also track the um, reliability um, or let's say 
um, yeah, the, the reliability of carriers in sticking to that allocation. And we can clearly see that those companies that had more uh, shifts and changes in, uh, in service providing partners in the, in the last years, they are being kicked off loading lists more often than those companies who stuck with only a few partners. So what I would interpret there is um, the more you go shopping as a shipper, the more you go for short-term market and the less well you treat your carrier partners, mm. the more you suffer now. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, those who have for the last past years always invested in sending transparent and open forecasts to the carrier and also delivering them bad news like, hey, I won't hit my MQC, I, I will not, uh, sorry, uh, minimum uh, quantity commitment, right? So. Um, I, I won't bring my volume that I promised to you and that I committed to. I'm sorry, but I want to be open from the very beginning. That also contributes to the carrier trusting you, right? And those companies, at least in, in our ecosystem, those of our customers who have done that in the last years, they actually say, yeah, well, I don't really have problems now. Because it's, it's like, um, and, and this is what, what, as per my understanding, um, is not really noticed and or isn't really um, given uh, attention enough in this discussion that carriers do have space which they need to assign to their clients, right? Um, and guess who, like if, if you were a carrier, whom would you give your available capacity to? To those companies that have always been treating you just like a, like a commodity provider or to those of your actual partners that have always seen your, your partnership as a real collaboration? Right, so mm -hmm. so this this there I would really say it's it's way too easy for for shippers today to just uh, point the finger at carriers and say hey now it's a seller's market and now you're you're taking the leverage and you're screwing us over I I think I I wouldn't buy that that's that's too easy to me I I, I agree with everything you said Jonas uh, just to add to that and I think and I think it's it's bad for the industry that this happens mm -hmm. to be honest because we have shippers customers now that are uh, you know contemplating whether they could sue any of their forwarders or carriers or if uh, you know they're just going to hold their breath until this is over and then it's payback time so if you go back to sort of originally what i mentioned about trust in this industry when we started this this is really not a positive development i mean it's fantastic for the carriers that they can make some money now because their financials haven't been strong in years that money can be then reinvested into more, let's say, environmentally friendly alternatives even. So so from a, from a holistic sort of view, this is not too bad, but, but it does something about the fundamental sort of issue about trust in this industry, which has already been very weak. Because if I take just one more data point, going back to 2016 i think it's march 2016 you could get a box from from um, asia to south america east coast for 50 to 100 dollars 50 to 100 dollars think about the millions of dollars that you invest in building one vessel and you go around the world you can't even go from i don't know oslo to a few miles out with the truck right right yeah for that price and but you could cross the globe and this is what i mean about like squeezing your suppliers we had customers paying that we needed to ask for documentation of a copy of an invoice in order to believe what we were watch, uh, seeing right and and yeah this which is not good either and this, exactly. this current situation is like flipping that chart on the head and saying okay now we're at 10k yeah. 
And that's not good either. And just, uh, just so my understanding, what was the reason for those rates being so low back in the days in 2016? Overcapacity. Overcapacity. Too much capacity. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, this is this is the thing. So, simplest explanation I have on this: since the 50s, the global trade has boomed, right? Mm -hmm. And bigger and bigger vessels have been built to deal with that growing volume, which is fine. And also paired with the fact that rates have been on a trend line just going down, right? That's the simplest way. That that equation works until you get shocks in the economy. So 2008, 2009, crisis, when you have... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because then you have bigger, bigger vessels being continuously deployed for the next, whatever, four or five years. But volumes are already shook and messed up, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So so there was too much boxes and, and, and vessels uh, floating around versus capacity. And the customers used that opportunity to negotiate, right? Yeah. Rates down, 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 all the way till it was almost free, right? <laughs> yeah. And then think about it. From, from owning assets worth billions of dollars, being stock-listed, and not getting investors to buy your shares, it's, that's the, the reality that Shipping Lance has faced, right? It hasn't been an attractive stock to own even yeah. right in hindsight so, is there anything that could have been done differently because you have to have a long-term view on on building out your vessel fleet right i mean these things cost a lot of money and take a lot of time to build and like how are you going to forecast what's going to happen in the next three four five years right is that the problem i mean it's just nature of the of the business you want to give it a stab jonas i have a few <laughs> views on this I don't, I don't know i don't know like um i think um I don't. I don't really think that I'm super qualified to uh, to to take the carrier's perspective there. But I think it was you, Patrick, uh, when when we first met a couple of years ago. You said, "Hey, um, if if you were the uh, CEO of a large uh, shipping line, uh, would you rather invest into your digitization strategy, which uh, makes up like uh, five percent of your cost right now, or would you rather invest in your assets and and optimizing your assets, uh, which makes up for, for like I don't know sixty or seventy percent of your cost?" Um, so. Um, yeah, that, that's just my, my absolute rookie um, idea. But again, I wouldn't consider myself being super qualified to jump in there. <laughs> I think uh, you mentioned, Boris, uh, forecasting. Let me give you a conundrum. It's Forecasting is probably the, the most requested uh, feature or whatever you, we get from our customers. And I usually tell them, uh, if they're willing to forecast uh, next year's oil price, I will put my, uh, you know, Uh, uh, name on the line and forecast next year's ocean freight rates. And, and let me give an example. Like in 2018, uh, Trump had been president for a, a little, little bit of a time and decides to start a trade war. Right. So uh, two events. A, Trump became a president. Not very expected, as you might recall. Yep. B, starting a trade war with China. What happened? Well, U.S. importers started front-loading cargo. So instead of hit getting the tariffs hitting them, they started rushing cargo into the country, creating a squeeze, mm -hmm. meaning rates on Trans-Pacific skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So if if you can find me an algorithm that can like draw that, do that calculation and forecast those events to happen, and that uh, um, sort of uh, what is it? What is it called? That that sort of reaction from from the market and, and the US importers and so forth, creating that squeeze, then then sure, then I can have an opinion about where the prices will move, but it's literally impossible, yeah, right? Yeah. This is the problem. And whether it's Brexit that drags on or Yellow West protests in France or congestions in Australia or whatever it is, these influences rates, right? Or take COVID, right? Yeah. I would any forecast for this year would have gone, sure. you know, out the window, yeah. and that's a little bit the problem because when you ask about shipping lines doing something, they they have a three, four, five 
year horizon on making these investment decisions. And then when it's deployed in the market, the conditions are con- completely different yeah. from anything you th- thought. Yeah. And then final element, sorry, then I'm going <laughs> to leave it be, is that lack of trust and short-sightedness that is, exists between the two parties. Right? There is no willingness to do a five-year plan because the risk you do with a five-year plan is that you lose out so substantially. Let's say Electrolux does that, but uh, Whirlpool didn't, and the market collapses and Whirlpool pay one-third of what Electrolux does. You can't live with that. That's just, I don't mean those two companies as an example, but but you get my yeah. drift, right? Yeah, maybe, Jonas, that's a good point in time to sort of recap again or, or have a good view on how ocean freight is typically procured. Right. How, take us through the process of how a, a shipper that goes through a straight a freight forwarder or it goes directly, how, how does currently being done? So usually um, if, if you run a company or work for a company that ships cargo around the world, for example, a large um, automotive producer or let's say retail company or FMCG company, whatever, um, you do have some kind of volume to, to play around with. So let's say you ship 100,000 containers around the world. And um, you need to get uh, a rate commitment from your partners. So those partners can be what we call NVOs, uh, non-vessel operating companies, so freight forwarding companies, or uh, carriers directly, such as MERS, CAPAC, Lloyd, MSC, and CMA. Um, And it depends on um, the profile of the shipper company. Shipper company is the company that ships around the cargo. Um, Whether you would rather go and hook up with a freight forwarder or with a carrier. Usually you can say the larger the volume and the less different trade lanes and less complexity within your um, within your allocation of, the, of that volume, the more sense it makes to uh, contract directly with uh, carriers. And yeah. Just usually, as an example, someone like Electrolux, I mean, they're, they're typically, they're, they're, yes, they're going exactly. carrier direct, right? And exactly. someone like Nestle, 400,000 containers, those are the, the heavy hitters, the big guys, they all go direct to carriers. Right? Exactly, and, it, and it's difficult yeah. to, to, to find like a, a, a clear border at which it makes sense volume-wise to go with carriers. I know companies that ship less than 1,000 containers per year, which is not really much. Um, um, who con- who negotiate directly with carriers, but I also know companies that ship fifteen thousand containers around the world that uh, purely go with freight forwarders. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's difficult mm-hmm. to find a, to find a mark there. But then the issue is um, that uh, there is no real standard. I mean, yes, there are, there are great initiatives like the uh, Digital Container Shipping uh, Association uh, (DCSA), or also uh, this week I, I talked to uh, Gordon from uh, NYSHEX, uh, New York. Uh, a shipping exchange, right? Um, so there are initiatives and also, I don't know, um, Patrick probably also drives standardization with Xenator because he has to deal with different standards of rate structure every single day, right? But the reality is the company goes ahead and says, okay, here's my volume. I'm going to send this to my carrier or to my freight forward in an Excel sheet. And which Excel structure will I use? Well, the one I, I used last year. And which one did I use last year? Yep, the one I used the year before, and so on. You can you can you can see where I'm getting to, right? So we don't have any standard, and every single company is using um, a a different, um, fully unstandardized uh, Excel structure, which is not which does not put anyone in a position to bring in any automation in the tender process. And then usually the sh- the shipper just says, "Hey, dear carrier or dear freight forward, please come back to me with your best." With your best prices, please fill this Excel sheet of 100,000 rows and get back to me. 
most of the times there is some kind of um, consultancy, uh, a consulting company involved, and I hope uh, my friends at all the con consulting companies will, will not hate me now. Um, so at least, I, you, you can actually give me a tender, and uh, based on the structure, I can tell you which consulting company was involved. Um, <laughs> So, at, least they're at least they're standardized enough so you recognize them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's some kind of islands, right? So I can, I can probably tell you who is on the uh, Accenture island and who lives on the BCG mm -hmm. island and who lives on the PricewaterhouseCoopers island, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but it's, but but it's, it's no know, But just, just, to, just to be clear, there's no, that's not for lack of tools out there. I mean, no, as I mentioned not. earlier, I mean, I, I worked for GT Nexus in 2009 <laughs> to 2018. That's, that's part of what we did. And there were others yeah. in the field like yeah. Intra and GT Nexus where you can automate your your freight procurement process. There right? are is many, that many, many great solutions. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's absolutely not a, not a technology question. It is, yeah. uh, it is uh, I don't know, it's, it's an industry issue. So um, I believe that this is where associations and, and, uh, and, and unity work can actually really help. Okay, and so, so typically this is done on an annual basis, right? So it's an annual tender, so I lock in my rates and my lanes and my volume commitments. Yeah, annual or, or quarterly or half, half annual, um, half annually. Um, so this, this depends on, uh, on, on the procurement design and the strategy of, of the shippers. Um, but yeah, th these, these are the uh, most common options. Um, but then what, um, what I don't like in this process is the moment you do that, you totally commoditize uh, the freight rate. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why we, why we don't have this trust in the relation between shippers and carriers, because the moment you commoditize freight rates, you just look at your Excel sheet. Of course, uh, me being 22 years old, just finishing or just graduating um, university, what do I do? Of course, I, I, I pick the cheapest one, because what am I good at? I'm, I'm good at Excel, right? So I just, I just look at the numbers, I can crunch my numbers, I pick the cheapest option, that's it. Um, but what is not being considered in that, um, in, that, in that picture is any service level. It's not like um, Jörn Frank Jensen from uh, Sea Intelligence um, actually launched a great, great article um, this week about um, freight cost versus total supply chain cost. And this is what, what's not being seen in this industry, like everything that goes next to the freight rate itself costs money. How much time do you invest in, in working your tender? How much detention and demerge do you pay? How much rework uh, mm -hmm. is being cost, right? And, and all of that is, to my point all of view, cost, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not considered enough at least. And, and I think this, this definitely has an influence and an impact on the lack of trust between uh, shippers and, and carriers. Patrick, what can be done about this? Any, any ideas? Any suggestions? I, I, I also love this part of, of our industry with all its uh, flaws and, and, and awareness because I think we don't look enough at what's the individual incentives in this mix. So let me do a couple of like cheesy, simple examples. A salesperson at a shipping line is rewarded and paid by the amount of money he's made, able to squeeze out of his customer. Mm -hmm. right? And the way he can do that is by making the picture like blurred like here's look at all these surcharges we're doing don't look at the price and then the bottom as jonas says look at all this stuff we're doing it's piracy surcharge in here it's overweight surcharge dangerous good surcharge the list goes on it's endless there's so much creativity <clears throat> now that doesn't make the customer necessarily trust you anymore but but going back to that the individual incentives that's what he cares about mm because that's his paycheck at the end of the day. Now, the log logistics procurement guy, he doesn't care about the supply chain in totality necessarily. 
he's measured on the spend that he comes out with. Yeah. So he will be the one calling up and sitting in a meeting, being ruthless, making sure it's a reduction year over year over year because he's get a pat on his back and he might even get, get a paycheck from exactly. it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different individuals and stakeholders that have disaligned incentives in this chain of events where you procure or, or run operations. And that's the problem. And, and solving that is, I, I'm, I'm too old to even start having <laughs> the aspirations on. to want to solve it. I've, we've taken it such a niche and I can see the complications and the problems we have within that niche. But now we talk about an ideal optimization. And I understand the theory behind it. But there's people in this process that's going to be impossible to deal with. Hey, I even have an example where I present an idea to a customer. I won't name him. Great guy. Super funny. Been in the industry for whatever, 30 years. We said, this is how you could replace the entire procurement process for a company like you. And he said, great idea. That I believe in. But you have to wait until I retire. <laughs> because then he's out of his right? job. So, huh? Okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so and that's what I mean about like different incentives and what people have. Like, why, why do they do as they do? And, and this is like um, <clears throat> taking a step back and like, you know, within the last five years, we've seen lots of venture capital investments in logistics and supply chain management, right? And, yes. and, and the usual narrative is, hey, logistics is like totally under digitized. Um, this is one of the reasons why. So in, in many, many cases, if you really want to um, invest in your logistics digitization campaign, um, usually companies check, okay, who, who has been responsible for, for digitization in the past in logistics? Sorry, um, who, who has dealt with logistics? Ah, it's, it's our procurement or it's our uh, logistics um, department. So let, let, let's have them handle our, uh, our logistics aspirations. Um, but at the same time, they're being rewarded um, for, for cutting costs. And that is, that's kind of, kind of like the, uh, the paradox in there, right? So what can be done? What are some some concrete things that you would change if you had a had a you know like a magic wand? What, what would you um, how would you use it? So I think um, there are super uh, super simple um, super simple steps or super simple things you can do. And I know it it might sound cheesy, but first of all, why in your tender process why don't you involve your few chosen partners sooner? So uh, to to give an example, uh, some of our companies uh, uh, customers um, they. They just uh, say, okay, um, I don't want to open up a tender and invite 50 participants and ideally uh, mix NVOs and carriers and, and bring in everyone. But instead, I take a handful of chosen and nominated um, partners and then um, I want to be as transparent as possible from the very beginning, uh, which in real life example means um, those customers of ours who, who perform better define already in the tender period in a collaborative way with the carrier, hey, I won't only tell you my volume, let's also discuss on which service string we want to put this. Let's discuss which lead time do I actually need. Do I really want to go for that uh, direct uh, service or is it okay if if we use some transshipment? So that's one example. And then this usually should be followed up by a proper forecast. And now everyone will say, yeah, it's super difficult to uh, forecast my business or to predict my business. Yes, sure. Uh, we, we, the, the expectation is not that everyone is 100% uh, correct every time, but at least um, you should give your, your carrier, your partner, some way, uh, some tangible prediction 
uh, whether you will ship 100 containers next week or, or only 10, right? It's not about whether you predict uh, 97 and at the end it'll come out at 95. It's about 100 versus 10. Um, and then also in times where, where you won't meet your commitment, just report that. Um, and, and we've seen that this really does make a difference because then when market shifts like it does right now again or like it did in the past um, and it, it, it becomes a market in which capacity is tight, then we have actually seen that carriers um, uh, did not lose their memory somewhere but they do remember um, who has been a great partner in the past and, and this is what, what we can only recommend, uh, like re start really um, change your mindset from, from understanding procurement as finding the cheapest price, change it towards procurement has to find the right partner. Patrick, anything to add there? Maybe also how, um, how can um, whatever you, Xenita, are doing, how can that improve the way that shippers and carriers navigate the, uh, the, the freight procurement space? Well, yeah, that, that's a broad uh, question, but I think <laughs> if, if both sides have access to the same type of data, Right then, and 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 the data is then the data is legit legitimized, right? So it becomes way more efficient to solve some of the questions at hand, right? So mm -hmm. simple case: Tokyo to Sydney is down thirty percent. Last year, you used to pay five percent more than the market average. Then it's easier to settle on a fair new price, mm -hmm. as an example, right? It's very simplistically uh, illustrated, but I believe that there's there's a way. Things are done today that are uh, far from optimal, and I believe, from the points of, of you know Don, Jonas talking about data standard and how we how we normalize the data sets that goes into Zanetta in order to make it an apple to apple comparison, and then then how that can be sort of uh, leveraged to make the proce process more efficient, whether it's the actual procurement, whether it's how you procure, whether it's how you uh, do index link contracts. There's many different sort of approaches that you can do with that. Yeah, maybe also to to finish it up or bring it home to finish up the, our episode today. What a, what are your predictions of how the the current crisis will resolve? And then next step, you know, what are your sort of predictions for, for the next couple of years? Maybe um, Jonas, first question. Let's take the first question first. What um, how do you think the uh, the current crisis will resolve? Yeah, I, I I learned from from Patrick 15 minutes ago that uh, that, Not to make uh, that there's, exactly that there's no way to predict something. <laughs> That's when I want to pin so, you down, so I can later come back and say, well, but Jonas said. I will I will I will rather um, um, give you a, a a maybe cheesy picture of how I would like it um, um, to be. Yeah, give us a cheesy um, picture. So yeah. I would really love if 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 really like uh, shippers and uh, carriers, like. Uh, Come to a come to a whole nother level in collaborating, um, where you don't look at your Excel sheet, which hopefully by then will not be an Excel sheet anymore. But um, where where you don't look first thing, second thing, and third thing at your prices, but add service level performance um, to your evaluation, add uh, response time um, to your evaluation. Um, mm -hmm. add reliability to evaluation, right? To step Data into quality. a real partnership. Yeah, and, and then why not? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this because Patrick's on the call, but um, why not just uh, agree on some some index-based uh, index price? And I know... I'm not being paid by Patrick. Why not just agree on an index-based price to make sure that you're not missing out, but also uh, not paying too much? 
right? Be somewhere in the middle and then f focus all your energy on just improving the collaboration and, uh, and bringing down the cost like every other cost but, 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 the, but the freight rate, right? That, that, that would be my, my, my wish. Yeah, Patrick, we saw you cheering, it's, so you, you, yeah. you couldn't agree more? <laughs> I, uh, Jonas, I'd, I'd give you a hug. It's such a rational way to look at things, and I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm still young enough that I want to keep that uh, aspiration for this industry as well, that it has to be possibilities to do it in a better way and focus more on the total uh, picture than, than just this short, uh, immediate future, low-hanging fruit gains that's sometimes there and always get picked in this industry, uh, making the other counterparty uh, suffer but uh, to your prediction question uh, Boris I think um, we for a good while I'm talking years we're going to be done with the historical low prices so it's going to take time to get back it will calm down now and going forward so let's say in the both in the short and midterm I expect it to calm down mm -hmm. um, uh, but I don't think I think it's going to be hard uh, for the shippers to push the carriers back to anything that looks like pre-COVID uh, mm. explosion. Mm. So that's uh, what I see coming up. And then, yeah, let's see what that means. But um, the, there, there ain't ideal market conditions, in my point of view, uh, between the uh, shipping lines. Right? There's too few options for the customers. I believe it's going to be difficult for to see new entrants because the investments are so immense mm. and that leaves maybe a market that looks a little bit like parcel or express where you have like fedex ups and dhl dominating the market and a bunch of other whatever niche player i want to call it right but that's that seems to be like an equilibrium in a market where governments are satisfied with open uh, open uh, competition Right? But you can, of course, debate that. But yeah, I think maybe that's where we're heading. And maybe that's where carriers have wanted this to go for the last 15 years as well. Yeah. Jonas, anything to add to that before we close no, today's I, podcast? I think, I think I won't be able to top that uh, elaborate statement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's noted down. So we're going to have to schedule the next follow-up podcast episode to see where we are how, how well your predictions have held up but guys thank you thank you very much for these great insights and for your opinions very much appreciated i have a feeling this is going to be a very good episode so thanks again for being on thank good you stuff. so much thank you for having us on boris as always so nice to see you <laughs> see you then bye bye until next time bye bye all right that was the logistics try podcast episode with patrick berglund and jonas crumland I hope you enjoyed today's show. If so, consider giving us a positive review and please subscribe to the Logistics Tribe podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Fagandrea. Until next time.